0: If you've missed our last sermon um, from last week in the book of Ecclesiastes, I'd really encourage you to go listen to it. It was a really tough passage. Uh, Scott Sutton handled it super well, and I remember very distinctly him kind of setting it up with a really difficult passage where Koholat, the author here, says, hey, it's better to, it's better to, better is the day of death than the day of life, And you're like, wait, what? Better is a funeral than someone being born? Like, how does that make any sense at all? I remember Scott kind of dragging out that tension of how can he say this, but then coming around and giving us just a really great, satisfying interpretation of that text and what it is that the author actually meant by saying that. So, I feel the, the pressure to do the same thing this week, you know, when um, in our passage he says, hey, be not overly righteous, don't, don't be too wise, right? It's like, wait, what in the world does this guy mean? So I looked in my study Bible and the notes there, I consulted some other guys to talk about what is he, what is he saying here, what does he mean by this, and read some commentaries, and, and behold, this is vanity and striving after the wind. Um, it's kind of how I felt part of the time, uh, but for real, like I think we have to remember, like even in these difficult passages, Paul actually points Timothy to the Old Testament and says that these teachings are able to make you wise into salvation. So this fits under that category, just like any other passage um, in our Bibles. And so as we walk through it, um, it's going to be a little more theo- maybe not theological, a little more philosophical, a little more kind of heady, nebulous academic concepts. Um, so, so buckle up a little bit, but it'll be, it'll be a, a fun journey as we walk through this. And so the first thing I want us to see is that many times in the book of Ecclesiastes, what we see from the speaker, now, let me back up, in the book of Ecclesiastes, you've got the author, the guy that kind of compiled this book and put it forward to us. But you've also got this speaker who does 99% of the talking, right? Um, and what we see a lot from the speaker, or I should say what we see sometimes from the speaker in this book is a problematic approach to wisdom. What do I mean by that, that he has a problematic approach to wisdom? What I mean is that it's a very, it's a very self-centered, self-reliant approach that we see coming out of him many times And so, at the very beginning of today's passage, in chapter 7, verse 15, he says, In my vain life, I have seen everything. And if you think about it, there's a little bit of irony even in that phrase, right? Because if you'll remember, the word vain that comes up so often is the word hebel, um, which is the idea of a, a vapor, something that's just like hard to grasp, something that just like comes, and right when you think you see it, it's gone. So he describes his life that way, in my vapor of a life, my here today, gone tomorrow, flash in the pan life. I've seen it all. Well, that that sounds a little self-contradictory, doesn't it? To say that in my little flash in the pan life, I've seen everything there is to see. Sounds almost, if not arrogant, a little self-centered. And he is basically seeking wisdom from his own experience, what he has seen, and trying to derive wisdom. From that. Um, So we could say he has a very autonomous approach to wisdom in parts of this book. And here's, if you don't know the word autonomous, I'm gonna go there with you real quick. The word autonomous means having the freedom to govern itself or control its own affairs. And so many times in the book of Ecclesiastes, that seems to be the approach that the speaker takes is like, hey, look, listen, guys, I've looked out and I've seen some things. What I have observed, what I have gathered, his own governance and compiling of his own wisdom based on what he has seen and heard. We'll come back to this problematic approach later. Um, but let's go on to our second idea, which is what we see as we continue on in the text, when he says, don't be too righteous. It's such an odd phrase, don't be overly righteous. Let's read it in verse some. Um, Uh, 15 or 16 there be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise why should you destroy yourself man what an odd thing to say right don't be too righteous and don't be too wise lest you destroy yourself and so let me just back up and look at some hermeneutical like scripture interpretation principles real quick with you and so a lot of times this happens right if we're honest we're reading our bibles We're going along and we see a sentence or a phrase and we're like, what? What does this mean? What could he possibly mean by that? And usually one of two things is true. It could be that as we're reading it, we have some bias or some understandings or assumptions that are not of biblical sound doctrine. Um, And God can use those passages to kind of shake us out of that to kind of align and correct our thinking on a matter Uh, But there are also times when we see something, and if taken at face value, the reason we double-take it, the reason we kind of cringe at it, is because if taken at face value, it seems to contradict so many of the other passages in our Bible that deal with similar issues. And so I think what we see in this text, for most of us probably, is the latter. It's probably that we hear that and we go, how can that possibly be, right? I mean, how does that accord with the rest of Scripture? Matthew five fourteen, Jesus said, "You therefore be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." Well, how do you reconcile that with "be not overly righteous"? Jesus echoes the first and greatest commandment from the Old Testament: of you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind." Well, how does that accord with "don't be too wise"? Right? These things don't seem to add up and to reconcile, and I could list a hundred more passages that would fit into that same idea of not according with this text if taken at face value. So what I want us to do is look at some possible meanings. Here's some things that might mean. And I'm going to be honest, like I'm not, I haven't like squarely landed on any of these three, right? Again, this is like, this is some deep stuff, um, and it can be difficult to discern, but let's look at a couple ideas that it might mean mostly by coming out, zooming out, and looking at the context of what he's saying. So one of the ideas might be that he's saying, hey, be, be humble. Don't, don't get on your moral high horse. Don't think that you've got it all figured out by your righteousness and your wisdom. Um, another verse that might lead us to that conclusion in context is verses 21 and 22, where he says, do not take to heart all the things people say, Lest you hear your servant cursing you, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So here's the picture he's painting, right? Imagine a guy, like, owns an estate. He's walking through the house. This is how people walk when they own an estate. Um, He's walking through the house, and he walks by a door, and he hears someone talking. And he's like, what's going on there? He stops, and he kind of puts his ear up to the door. And what he hears is one of his servants kind of ragging on him, kind of bashing him to someone else. And he starts to get real upset, and Colette, our speaker, steps in and goes, hey, take it easy. You know you've done the same thing, right? You know there's been times where you've talked about people behind their back, and you wouldn't want to be judged by that. You wouldn't want to be called to account by that person for every evil or disparaging thing you've said about them. So, hey, calm down. It's going to be okay. Don't take that to heart. Don't let that ruin your day or form your opinion of that person. That's one idea, one possible interpretation. He's saying be humble. Another one is the idea of he's encouraging us to trust ultimately in God and not in good works. Trusting in God and not in good works. Some support for that would be some of the other things he says in verse 18. He says, it's good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Talking about the guy who's overly righteous, the guy who's overly wicked, what's going to happen to him. He says, the one who fears God is the one who does well in the end. It's kind of confusing because you think, well, surely the one who pursued righteousness would be the one that feared God. But he's boiling it down to saying, no matter what level of righteousness, wickedness you have, the one who trusts in God is the one who does well. In verse 20, he says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So that kind of plays in the idea that maybe he's saying that, like, look, you can pursue righteousness all you want. At the end of the day, you're never going to be completely righteous, right? If you're trying to make yourself righteous enough in God's sight to be considered holy and worthy of his acceptance, that is a fool's errand, right? So don't, don't think that you can achieve acceptance with God by your righteousness, that's one idea. Um, along those same lines, we could interpret it to mean basically the idea that, look, there can be exceptions to the rule, um, but you don't want to bank on that. So let's look at it, verse 16. He says, do not be overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why? Why should you destroy yourself? Then he goes on, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So what do you, One idea is that what he's basically saying is this, that conventional wisdom says, what we look at and would expect to see in the world, given what God has told us in his word, is that if you you are righteous, you will live a long, prosperous life. And if you are wicked, you will die early. And he's saying to the wicked person, look, just because sometimes the wicked prolongs his life, that's the exception. Don't think that by being wicked, you can ensure you'll have a long life. Similarly, Don't think by being righteous, just because normally conventional wisdom says the righteous go on to live a long and full life. Don't put your hope ultimately in that. Calamity may still come. Struggles may still be on the horizon. No matter how righteous you are, that's not necessarily going to exempt you from the struggles in the world. And you can't use that to twist God's arm to spare you some of the difficult things in life. Douglas O'Donnell says that in this quote. He says this. This is the approach he takes. He says, The sense is this. If anyone, whether righteous or unrighteous, can die young, then do not think that somehow obtaining ultra-righteousness will be an absolute insurance against such calamity. It is not that Solomon is against righteousness, consistent thought, godly thought, speech, and actions, Rather, he is against attempting to tie God's hands or open God's hands of blessings by our behavior. Things are going to happen in your life that you don't like, and you being overly righteous and putting your hope in that isn't necessarily going to ensure that you don't have struggles and difficulty along the way. So don't put your hope in that. Ultimately, trust in God and not your ability to live a certain way to avoid suffering. And then a the third meaning, one way we could interpret it, um, is that he's simply wrong. And I know you're probably doing a double take on that, right? Like, what do you mean he's wrong, right? This is, this is scripture. All of it's breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, right? That how can we say God's inerrant word is wrong? I'm not, I'm not saying God's word is wrong. What I'm saying is that in the context of this book, what you have is a guy, Colette, on this journey of the human experience where God has said certain things are true, but he's looking out and he's saying things like, well, if that's true, how do you make sense of this? How do you make sense of that? And he's searching for wisdom, and he's just vomiting a lot of his thoughts. And there's times in the book of Ecclesiastes where he's saying things that accord with godly wisdom, right? So we're not taking the approach of this guy's off the rails, so we just need to dismiss everything he says. But we do need to recognize that he's wrestling here, Right? Um, Just another example of that, if you're struggling with that concept of is it wrong or right, think about the book of Job, um, where all these bad things happen to him, and his wife gives him the command, curse God and die. Now, most of us don't read that verse and go, see, honey, this is what we should do. We need to lead our family in this direction. We should all curse God and die, right? We understand that even though that is a command in Scripture, it's a command for us to see, but it's not necessarily a command to us to obey. Does that make sense? And so in Ecclesiastes, it's not always real clear, right? Is this like godly wisdom we should obey? Or is this just him kind of like spouting off? And so I love the way Craig Bartholomew puts it in this way. He says, This, shocking advocacy of moderation, his advice to be not too righteous and not too wise, is more of a despairing protest than a viable way forward. Now, like, here's the deal, between these three interpretations, right, like, there are guys way smarter and well, way more well-studied than I am, who can speak more clearly, too, um, who uh, take different approaches to this, so I, I hesitate to come up and say, this one's right, this one's wrong, and it could be that we can gain something understanding-wise from all three of them, um, but that's kind of the one I lean towards in the context of the rest of the chapter, because... Going back to what we see earlier is that what we see in Kohelet in general, especially in this chapter, is a very autonomous approach to wisdom. It's a very, what I would say, problematic approach where you hear the word I a lot. I searched a thing to make sense of it. I looked out. I saw. I believe. I observe. We hear him searching for wisdom and starting with himself. Look at verse 23. He says, all this, I have tested by wisdom, I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. You hear that autonomous approach. look at verse 25 I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. So you see the problem there that he's leaning heavily so much on his own observation, trying to make sense of it all. In verse 26, he says, and I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. So before you get all, you know, power to women, how dare he on me. Let me just uh, tell you what's going on here. A lot of times Solomon in the book of Proverbs will personify things with women. Um, so for instance, he'll talk about how this woman folly-like lays this trap and she's waiting for someone to devour. And so that, that temptation is personified as a woman. You'll also hear him personify wisdom in the person of a woman who's calling out for people to come and receive wisdom and kind of dine at her table. So you see him personifying both good and evil things um, as a woman. But he's talking about the idea that there's a temptation, there's a trap out there, and the one who doesn't fear God falls into it. But there's an irony in this because I think that part of what we see is that Koalet, the speaker himself, is falling into one of those traps that he is warning us of as he relies so heavily on his own knowledge. And let's keep going and I'll explain what I mean by that. In verse 27, what we see is that the author interjects. So again, I know we're getting kind of heady here, but stay with me. Remember the book of Ecclesiastes, there's kind of two authors. There's the author, the guy who compiled all this stuff and presented it, and then there's the speaker, Coalette. 99% of the time, we're hearing from Coalette. We only hear from the author three different times, once at the very beginning, when he says, hey, the preacher came, and this is what he said. And then at the very end, we see the author step in and say, the preacher said all these things, and here was the conclusion. Only one other time does the author kind of step in and remind us of his presence and kind of clarify what the speaker is going through. So that ought to get our attention. Like, why does he step in right here? And we see it in verse 27. He says, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things. So you kind of see the author kind of saying, look, he's he's adding one thing to another. He's saying, behold, this is what I have found. He's, He's reaching, he's searching, he's grasping at straws, trying to make sense of things, looking through his own lens, and he's hitting a roadblock. And then we see in verse 28 where he says this. He says, Which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Now, that's a tricky verse. Honestly, I'm not going to go there, not because I don't, like, afraid of it or anything. It's just for the sake of time. That would be a huge rabbit trail. But if you want to dialogue about that and ask a question about it, um I know it's tricky because the whole man is here, woman is here thing, but you can email me. Um, I'll put my email address on the screen for you, and um, I'd be glad to, um, <laughs> glad to talk to you about that. So, um, it's actually not my email address that's Ryan's, but for real, I'm just... You can find my email address on there. I'm not trying to shy away from that. But, um, yeah, we're just not going to chase that rabbit today because there's so much other stuff we can see in this text. Um, And so, verse 29, he says this, See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So as he's hitting this roadblock, he says, Look, this alone I have found, God made man upright, But then man has sought out many schemes. I think what he's doing, directly or indirectly, is he's pointing us back to the garden. When God created all things, right, the world and everything in it, then he made man as the crown jewel of his creation in his own image. He made him upright. He set him in a good place. But man has messed it up. Rather than staying in the place that God put him in this uprightness, man has become crooked and sought out many schemes, tried to find meaning and purpose and fulfillment everywhere but where God placed him. Like a parent with a toddler, God sets us down in a place where we're safe and loved and cared for and have everything we need. But like a toddler, we have wandered off to find our way into trouble. And what Colette is saying is that the problem is not, with all this evil, the problem isn't with God, but with man. And we see that bit of irony in verse 29, that the, the very thing he warned us about, this, this trap, this folly personified in this woman who's seeking meaning to seeking her own schemes, going people going to do their own things, trying to seek, seeking their own schemes, trying to find their way. He says that's When you're not seeking God, but you're seeking your schemes in your own way, that's a trap to avoid. He himself has, in some sense, fallen into it. Because he's seeking purpose and fulfillment through his own lens rather than seeking the Lord first and foremost. And his search for meaning has been a search outside of trusting God. He's doing, in some sense, the very thing he's warning about. So, what I want to do is take a look at a better. Approach to wisdom A better approach to wisdom, not an autonomous. I looked out, I saw this, here's what I've come up with. I've stacked it all up and made a conclusion. In contrast to that, the greater scope of Scripture would show us this is an approach to wisdom. Number one, look to the Creator before the created. But to the creator before the creator. In other words, we start not with autonomy, not with ourselves, but with ontology, who we are. The word ontology is like the study of being. Not, not what do I see, not what do I experience, not what's happening to me and around me, but a more basic question of who am I, right? That seems to be the thing he skips over at times in this book, is that he kind of almost looks past that and just looks out to the creation. What do I see without looking through the lens of who am I? Where is my creator in this? It's really interesting. Solomon um, wrote the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, he starts there. In chapter 1, verse 7, he says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want to be wise. You want to make sense of things. You want to look out and understand what's going on. Wisdom starts with the fear of God. It starts with who we are as his creatures living under his creation and rule. It starts there. It seems like part of what we see in the book of Ecclesiastes is that he takes a long journey trying to look at things and make sense of things and stack things on top of each other. He gets frustrated. He hits roadblocks and then he ends there but he took a long way to get there. At the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, when all has been said, all things considered, fear God and keep his commandments. See, in Proverbs, he starts there, but in Ecclesiastes, he seems to end there. But it's the human experience that takes him down that journey of what God has said these things, but I look out in the world, I see evil. I see the wicked at times flourishing in the righteous perishing even though godly wisdom would suggest otherwise how do we make sense of that he's wrestling he's toiling his answers are unsatisfactory he can't make meaning of it at the end of the day he says the only thing we can do is fear god and keep his commandments and we can learn something from this we can learn that our search for wisdom must begin not with what we experience but with who we are If we begin with our experiences, what we see, we are effectively putting ourselves in the position of God, autonomously choosing for ourselves what the meaning and purpose of life should be, as if it's up to us to figure that out and navigate our way through it. But friends, if we'll understand who we are, then our purpose and meaning can be clearly derived, not from inside ourselves, but from the one who has created us. We find meaning not in what we see, but in who we belong to. And any other pursuit is likely to lead us to deception and despair. So practically speaking, when you're at a crossroads in your life, I don't know whether to do this or that, take this route or take that route, whatever the decision is, one of the helpful things to ask yourself is to kind of zoom outside of what you see and Making a T-chart of the pros and cons of each one and weighing it all out is maybe to step back a little further and ask yourself, well, who am I? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're, you're a child of God who was placed on the earth to represent and reflect His glory. So maybe a question would be, which of those two paths helps me fulfill the purpose God has given me more effectively? There's not always going to be a clear answer. Maybe, maybe either one can do that. Well, great, then pick one, right? I mean, maybe it doesn't matter as much as you think it does if both of those things can allow you to act in accordance with who you are and who God has made you to be. I think about this in terms of repentance. If you and I have done something evil that we know grieves the Holy Spirit, chased some sort of sin that we know is not in accordance with what God wants for us, then we find ourselves wanting to repent and come back to God it can be tempting to see God as someone who may or may not be real eager to accept us back in our hearts towards repentance towards him that maybe he's a little hesitant a little bit stiff arming us but friends, you know what that is that's our lack of understanding of who God is as our Father Again if you're a Christ follower you are a son of God and God is a loving father not a wicked and even evil father I think about like my own kids, right? If one of my kids had done something really bad that was upsetting to me and was disappointing to me, and they came to me in sorrowful repentance, not again, not because they, not because they wanted their allowance, right? Not to try to get something out of me, but if they came to me in such a way, craving that friendship and fellowship they had and wanting to make things right, I'm not gonna tell them, okay, I understand you're sorry, but before things can be right between us again, here's a list of things you need to do to make up for this. No, friends, that's not how a loving father treats his kids. Now, there may be some consequences of the sin, but those consequences are not acts to try to earn my approval and love as a father. That's there because it's my son. It's my daughter. And friends, that's, we're about ontology, it's a big word, but it's who we are. We are God's beloved sons and daughters if you are in Christ believing in him and following him and you turn to him in repentance seeking to restore that fellowship and communion you had before the sin. God is not stiff-arming that. He's not asking you to do a list of things of penance before you can make things right. He just wants you to embrace the idea that yeah, you're his son, you're his daughter and you're beloved by him. Not because of what you do, but because of who you are. So who are we? Well, the story of Scripture would answer it this way, that number one, we're created in His image. God made all the things in the world, and lastly, He made man in His image. That we are beautiful because of that, but broken because of sin. Beautiful, but broken creatures made in His image. And if you are in Christ, he then has redeemed you because of his great love. In other words, he redeemed you because he loved you. He doesn't love you because he redeemed you. John Stott says it this way. He says, God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. and That even in our sin and transgression, It was God's love and kindness towards us as sinners that brought about our redemption and our forgiveness through the work of Jesus. So number one, look to the creator before the creator. Number two, trust God when it doesn't make sense. And let me just say this, friends. I don't say that tritely. If the book of Ecclesiastes does anything, it dismisses these little Trite sayings we try to throw up people in their suffering, like, Oh, you're having a really hard time because these terrible things happen. Well, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for his life, so be happy. Ecclesiastes flies so hard in the face of that. So I don't say this in a way to dismiss the struggle, to dismiss the difficulty, but rather to cling to God's truth amidst the difficulty. It's okay that it's hard. It's okay that it's hard to make sense of. It's okay that you're struggling with different ups and downs on this roller coaster of life when what God has said and who He is seems to not match up with the reality you're in. You don't always find the answers you want in Scripture, but you're sure not going to find them anywhere else. There are questions that won't be easily answered. But they will be answered ultimately in the end in Christ. One of my favorite passages in all of scripture is in John chapter 6, where Jesus has thousands of people ready to follow him. Like, let's go, let's do this thing. And he looks at him and says, Yeah, yeah, cool. Hey, if you want to do this, if you want to follow me, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's confusing. That's a hard teaching. That's what they say to him. They begin to leave because they don't like it. And he looks at his disciples. How about you guys? Y'all leaving too? They didn't understand it any better than other people did. They didn't have this insider knowledge where it all made sense yet. They were just along for the ride. It was as perplexing to them as anyone else that was there. But look at what happens. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. As difficult as it may be to hear and as unsatisfying as it may seem, sometimes that's the best we can do as we ride this roller coaster at our lowest point of, man, this doesn't make sense. I don't get it. If God is all-loving and he wants the best for me, why is this thing happening? Where else are you going to go, friends? If you've tasted the goodness of God and the love of Jesus as the Holy Spirit bears witness in your heart towards him, you know the answer is there is nowhere else to go. He alone has the words of eternal life. Even when that's difficult to hold on to and things don't make sense. And number three, lean on the gospel. The only time Ecclesiastes is quoted in the New Testament is in Romans chapter three, and we'll read that passage as we close, but before we get there, when I say lean on the gospel, here's what I mean. When we look and we see the sufferings and struggles that we're going through or others are going through, and we can't make sense of it, and it's difficult, and it doesn't seem to mesh with what we know about God and who he is as a loving, caring creator who's on our side. Scripture may not give us an answer for that that's fully satisfying and sets us at ease and goes, oh, that's how those two things work together. But one thing the story of the gospel does is it removes from all doubt the possibility that it's happening because God doesn't love us. It's not that. The cross overshadows that possibility. Tim Keller says it this way. So why does God allow evil and suffering? We may not know what the answer is, but we know what it is not. It can't be that he doesn't love us. Friends, as we close, I just want to read this passage. I think it's fitting because there seems to be this throw-your-hands-up moment Colette has when he's like, look, you want to be righteous? Here's the deal. No one is righteous. You want to try to earn your way into a life of blessing and ease under God's favor with full acceptance of him? That's a fool's errand. No one can do it. No one is righteous. Well, Paul picks up on that problem and gives us the answer in the person of Jesus. Romans 3:10 As it is written no one is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks for God all have turned aside together they have become worthless no one does good no not even one Their throat is an open grave they use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps is under their lips Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness Their feet are swift to shed blood In their paths are ruin and misery The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's a fool's errand. You can't do it. No one can. Verse 21. But now, now that Christ has come and done what he's done, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. We couldn't do it, so he stepped in. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins, It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the best encouragement we could have today is in this. If you would go ahead and take out your Lord's Supper elements. That no one could be justified by works of the law, but God stepped in and made a way. when Jesus' body was broken to take the punishment for our sins so that we could be redeemed and restored as his sons and daughters take and eat and his blood spilled for our forgiveness and redemption take and drink